I don't know if I get it. I, I don't know if I know what just happened in that movie. Well, the movie Inception was like that for me. I don't know if you all saw that movie, but uh, Leonardo DiCaprio uh, starred in that movie, and he played uh, a thief who steals information from people's minds by entering into their subconscious. Uh, and, and so his skill has made him a hot commodity on the corporate espionage, uh, international black market, uh, so to speak. Uh, and so uh, somebody hires DiCaprio not to actually take information out of people's minds, but what this guy wants to do is to plant an idea in somebody's mind. And so that's never been done before. But DiCaprio says it can be done. But the first thing he needs to do is he has to figure out a way to scheme uh, a way into that person's dreams. Uh, and then he has to cause that person to have a dream within a dream. And then another dream within that dream. Uh, and it's a complicated thing and it's also a very high stakes game because people know what he's up to. They know he's up to no good and if he gets killed in that person's dream, well, that's it for him. He gets trapped there in that other person's dream. So if you haven't seen the movie and you're having a hard time following me, well, now you understand. Uh, that's the whole point. This is a great movie, but like I said, I've seen it three times and I, I still don't know if I get it. And I think that's a little bit how we feel when we read Daniel chapter 7 and through the end of the book. There's so much prophecy going on uh, and we're just not sure we really understand it. And, and I bet, even more than us, I bet that's how Daniel felt as God is revealing this to him uh, in dreams and visions uh, as he's thinking about what all this stuff means. So let's just look at the outline of the book. Oh, I meant to put that up earlier. Uh, so let's just look at the outline of the book uh, where we see the first uh, six chapters uh, of Daniel. Uh, these first six chapters are written in the third person because Daniel is interpreting other people's dreams. And so at this point, uh, he is Daniel the interpreter. Uh, and then beginning in chapter 7, uh, Daniel is actually receiving his own dreams and visions. Uh, and he shifts from the third person to the first person now to talk about the visions that he personally saw. And in this section of the book, he's now Daniel the seer. He's seeing his own dreams. He's seeing his own visions. So chapter 7, which we'll talk about today, is the vision of the uh, four beasts and the vision of the Ancient of Days, uh, which we'll talk about today. Chapter 8 is the vision of the ram and the goat, uh, which we'll, we'll get to next week. That represents Greece and uh, Persia. Chapter 9 is his vision of the 70 weeks. And then chapters 10 through 12 are visions of the end times for Israel. So uh, we'll get to all of these in the coming weeks. But this is Daniel receiving dreams and visions. And so he's speaking in the first person. And each one of these dreams and visions disturbed and distressed Daniel. And, and so I think at the end of the book, uh, he still doesn't understand all that he has uh, received in terms of revelation. And so as readers, uh, we, I think, can be just as confused uh, there's a lot for us to figure out here, but thankfully, uh, we have what Daniel did not have, right? Uh, we have the benefit of unfolding world history, and we also have the, the benefit of the revelation of the New Testament and the revelation of Jesus Christ himself uh, to help us. So before we begin, I just want to reset the scene uh, for where we are in history, because remember I told you that the chapters of Daniel are not in chronological order necessarily. So here is the outline we've put up about the chronology of the chapters of Daniel. Uh, Daniel chapter 1 through 3 
uh, happened in about 605 to 602 BC when Nebuchadnezzar came to Israel and he exiled Daniel and his friends. Uh, so those three chapters happened about 605 to 602. Then Nebuchadnezzar's tree dream, chapter 4, happened later in Nebuchadnezzar's reign, so maybe 30 years later, 570 or so BC. Then Daniel chapter 5 jumps forward in history several years to 539 BC. Nebuchadnezzar is dead, four other kings have come and gone, and now Belshazzar is co-king with Nabonidus uh, in Daniel chapter uh, 5. And so Daniel chapter 5 describes the handwriting on the wall, right? You have been weighed, measured, and found wanting. Uh, and this describes uh, the end of the Babylonian reign and the conquest, uh, a Persia conquest of Babylon. Then Daniel chapter 6 also happens later in 539 BC, but this is in the first year of Darius. Now the Persian king uh, is on the throne, and that's when Daniel was rescued from the lion's den. Now Daniel chapter 7 goes back in time again. So now we're back into the Babylonian kingdom. Belshazzar uh, is still on the throne. Daniel is probably in his 60s, say 68 years old or so. This is before the lion's den. This is 14 years before the fall of Babylon. And so God shows Daniel a dream and a vision within the dream uh, during this time. And the jumping around of the chapters can be confusing. So I just like to lay this out for you week by week so you know where we are. Now, as we come to Daniel 7, uh, we have to recognize the almost exact parallels with Daniel chapter 2, uh, Nebuchadnezzar's tree dream where he saw a statue made up of various metals. So as we said then, uh, the head of gold represented Babylon. Uh, the arms of silver represent Medo-Persia. The belly and thighs of bronze represent Greece. The legs of iron represent Rome, and then the toes of iron mixed with clay represent some future uh, reconstituted form of uh, the Roman government, uh, which will exist uh, at a later date. Uh, and then, as we saw in chapter 2, there was a stone that came that smashed the toes of clay and iron and obl uh, obliterated the entire statue. That stone was Jesus, who established his kingdom uh, at, uh, of heaven, and that'll, that'll happen at his second coming. Now, the difference between chapter 2 and chapter 7 is that Daniel's vision here focuses much more on this reconstituted fourth kingdom that is going to reign at some point in the future. Uh, so that's what we're going to be talking about in this vision of the four beasts and the interpretation of the vision. But Daniel's vision actually consists of three separate parts here, and that's what we'll be talking about today. So uh, the vision of the four beasts happens only in verses 1 through 8. And then we have the vision of the Ancient of Days, which makes it so appropriate that Michael played that song today. It was a perfect song choice for what we're going to be covering today. And then we'll have the vision of the Son of Man, verses 13 and 14, and then the interpretation of the vision, which is in uh, verses 15 to 28. And that is where the angel interprets the vision for Daniel. So we're, we're into the prophecy now of Daniel, and we'll be in prophecy the rest of the way. And, and so uh, there are lots of reasons to study prophecy, but to me, uh, the most important reason to study prophecy is that we see the sovereignty of God so plainly writ across the pages of Scripture. And to me, it's just comforting to know that there is a God in heaven who controls all the events of history. He controls everything that has ever happened and ever will happen. And this God loves us, and he is all-powerful. And so if he can control history then he can fulfill his promises to us, right? And, and if he will fulfill his promises to us, that means we can trust him with our eternity, 
and we can trust him with our today. And so it's not just, you know, God talked about Persia and, and Greece, you know, hundreds of years ago. No, all of this stuff applies today. So if you get nothing else from this sermon, I want you to get this, that we can trust God with our eternity. And because we can, we can trust him with our todays and our tomorrows as well. So let's start by looking at this vision of the four beasts. We'll uh, just look at the first four verses for now. In the first year of Belshazzar, a king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions in his mind as he lay on his bed. And then he wrote down the dream and told the following summary of it. Uh, Daniel said, I was looking in my vision by night and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea and four beasts were coming up from the sea different from one another. The first was like a lion, but had the wings of an eagle. I kept looking until its wings were plucked, and it was lifted up from the ground and set up on two feet like a man, and a human mind was also given to it. So commentators generally agree that the four winds uh, speak to the sovereign power of God or perhaps the sovereign judgment of God. Uh, and this vision of the four beasts, verses 1 through 8, describes four uh, future, from Daniel's uh, perspective, uh, kingdoms of the earth uh, that uh, were going to arise. So Daniel looks into the sea, which is a metaphor for kingdoms of the earth, and he sees these four successive beasts emerge. And this first beast looked like a lion, but it had the wings of an eagle. And then its wings were plucked off, and it was stood on two feet and had a human mind. Now, this first beast represents Babylon and corresponds to the head of gold in Nebuchadnezzar's statue dream. So why a lion, we might ask? Well, uh, Jeremiah chapter 4, verse 7, describes Babylon like a lion. This is what it says. A lion has gone up from his thicket, and a destroyer of nations has set out. He has gone out from his place to make your land a waste. Your cities will be ruins without inhabitants. So there he is presented as a lion. Uh, Jeremiah chapter 49 verses, verse 22 actually portrays Babylon as an eagle. So you have both symbols, a lion and an eagle. And also I have shown you before uh, this, this uh, picture of the Ishtar gate. Uh, this is the, the gate that you would go into to enter into the main entrance of Babylon. Uh, and Babylon's bricks, those, those bricks that you see in the, in the background, that's a close-up of the foreground. Nebuchadnezzar uh, portrayed himself as a conquering lion. And uh, history bore that out, that he was a conquering lion. Now, then the, then, then the lion's wings get plucked. So what's that all about? He loses his mind, perhaps. And we know that from chapter 4. So maybe the plucked wings represent him losing his mind, losing his sanity for a period of time, uh, as we saw in chapter 4. But then when he stood up on two feet, uh, that may represent the fact that he bowed down sovereignly to God, got his kingdom back, and received uh, wisdom, which may be what the mind of man means. So that interpretation is one possibility. The other possibility is that the wings being plucked off and standing on two feet and having the mind of a man refers to how Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom would become weaker after he died. So he loses his ability to fly, uh, he loses strength, he loses speed, and would therefore more easily be conquered. So uh, I'd leave that one to you. You can choose which interpretation you like better. Uh, but the first beast is Babylon. So let's take a look at the second beast. This is verse 5 now. And behold, another beast, a second one resembling a bear. And it was raised up on one side, and three bones were in its, between its teeth, and they, said to this, and, and they said this to it, Arise, devour much meat. 
Well, the bear represents Medo-Persia. In Isaiah chapter 13, verses 17 to 18, Isaiah says, Behold, I am going to stir up the Medes against them, who will not value silver or take pleasure in gold. And their bows will mow down the young men. They will not even have compassion on the fruit of the womb, nor will their eyes pity children. So this is Persia who would conquer Babylon. And the bear was an appropriate metaphor for Medo-Persia because of its great size and its ferocity in battle. Now, Daniel saw this bear raised up on one side, which more than likely represents the fact that the Persian part of the kingdom would be raised up, become higher than the Median part of the, uh, of the, uh, of the empire. And so these three ribs in the bear's mouth, uh, they either stand for the nations that preceded Persia, which would be Egypt, Assyria, and Babylon, uh, but more likely they probably represent uh, these lands, the lands that Medo-Persia would end up uh, conquering, which are Babylon, Lydia, and Egypt. And so the bear was told to arise, devour much meat, which signifies the great size of this kingdom uh, that the Medo-Persians would have that stretched even further than the Babylonian kingdom. Uh, so that's the second beast. Now, let's take a look at the third beast, verse 6. After this, I kept looking, and behold, another one, like a leopard, which had on its back four wings of a bird. The beast also had four heads, and dominion was given to it. Now, the third beast is Greece under Alexander the Great. Uh, it was represented by a leopard. Uh, this is an animal noted for its speed and its strength and its agility. Uh, I don't know if you've ever seen those videos on National Geographic or whatever where a, a leopard kills a, a, an antelope or even a wildebeest and then carries this dead animal that weighs hundreds of pounds up into a tree. I mean, that is incredible strength uh, at speed and agility. And so uh, this leopard has four wings, which means it would be, that would make it faster than a leopard ordinarily is, which is very fast. Uh, and so he's, he's got these four wings, and, uh, and that represents the speed of which Alexander the Great conquered uh, the Persian Empire. And we'll see in, in uh, chapter 8 next week that, that Greece is actually represented by a goat who doesn't touch the ground. He just flies across the ground, such as his speed. And so we'll see that. So the point of all this is how fast Alexander the Great conquered Persia. It took him only four years, uh, from 334 BC to 330 BC, and Alexander the Great ruled the world. Now the four heads uh, represent what happened to Alexander the Great's kingdom. After Alexander died, his kingdom was split among four different generals, and the kingdom became weaker uh, as a result of that. But uh, I don't want to get ahead of myself. We're going to talk about that next week when we get to chapter 8. So the third beast is Greece, which corresponds to the uh, belt or to the thighs of the, um, of the uh, uh, Nebuchadnezzar's dream statue. All right, and now this fourth beast uh, verses 7 and 8. After this, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible, extremely strong, and it had large iron teeth. It devoured and crushed and trampled down the remainder with its feet, and it was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. While I was thinking about the horns, behold, another horn, a little one, came up among them, and three of the previous horns were plucked out before it, and behold, this horn possessed eyes like human eyes and a mouth uttering great boasts. Well, 
Your guess is as good as mine as to what this fourth beast may have looked like. Uh, Daniel didn't mention an animal that he was familiar with because it probably didn't look like any animal that he was familiar with. So here are a couple of artists' renditions, you know, a dinosaur, a dragon, uh, whatever. Uh, but this beast was different from the others. Uh, and so this is the Roman Empire, which corresponds to the iron legs of Nebuchadnezzar's dream statue because it was ruthless in its destruction, killing captives by the thousands and, and, and also uh, selling, sl selling captives uh, away into slavery by the hundreds of thousands. That's the Roman Empire. And this beast had 10 horns. Now, it's easy to get confused about the identity of the horns uh, when we look in, uh, in Daniel. Uh, there is a little horn here in Daniel chapter 7, but he's not the same person as the little horn that we're going to meet next week in Daniel chapter 8. So in Daniel chapter 8, this little horn is Antiochus Epiphanes. He is a, a Greek ruler who ruled in the 170s and the 160s uh, and who uh, offended Israel by uh, slaughtering a pig on the altar of the temple. We'll talk about that next week. But here in Daniel 7, the horn represents the future Antichrist uh, who will wage war against God's people in the last days. And so we'll dig into that more as we look at the interpretation beginning in verse 15. But that's the vision of the four beasts. Now, onto the second part of Daniel's vision. This is verses 9 through 12, and this is the vision of the Ancient of Days. So we'll look first at verses 9 and 10. Uh, I kept looking until thrones were set up, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was ablaze with flames. Its wheels were a burning fire. A river of fire was flowing and coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands were serving him, and myriads upon myriads were standing before him. The court convened, and the books were opened. So in the first eight verses, Daniel is looking into the sea. That's a metaphor for earth. Now the vision shifts. Daniel is now looking up into heaven instead of into the sea. And the thrones are set up, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. Now the Ancient of Days is God, the Father. And although we can't tell from our English translations, in the original language, in Aramaic, this, these verses here are written in poetry. Uh, and that's because uh, the author wanted to uh, use a more elevated form of language, a more eloquent form of language when he's describing God. Uh, and so uh, this title, uh, this title, Ancient of Days, stresses his eternality, and his white hair and white clothes uh, speak to his holiness. And thrones is plural, so God is going to sit on his throne, but there are other thrones there, and those are occupied by the saints who will sit on those thrones according to Revelation chapter 20. And the thousands uh, and thousands who attend to God, uh, who serve him, these are his angels uh, who, uh, are, who serve the living God. And when Daniel saw God take the throne, he knew that court was now in session. Judgment was about to come. And so rivers of fire representing the judgment of God uh, come from the Ancient of Days throne and the books were opened. And so God was about to pour out his judgment on the little horn with the very big mouth. Let's look at verses 11 and 12. Then I kept looking because of the sound of the boastful words which, which the horn was speaking. And I kept looking until the beast was killed and its body was destroyed and given to the burning fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but an extension of life was granted to them for an appointed period of time. So now the scene shifts back to earth again. And the language shifts from poetry to prose, since we're talking about uh, these beasts again. 
And so this Antichrist is going to make very loud boasts. But in the end, God will judge him by throwing him into the lake of fire, uh, according to, uh, to verse 11, uh, fleshed out in further detail at the end of chapter 7 and also uh, in Revelation chapter 20. So that's what's coming for the future Antichrist. Verse 12 is difficult, this idea that their dominion was taken but an extension of life was granted to them for a time. Uh, that may mean uh, that each of these successive kingdoms who were overthrown militarily, uh, that some of their culture lived on in the succeeding uh, kingdom, and that's what it means that, they, that uh, some extension of life was granted to them. Uh, so now uh, let's look at the third part of Daniel's vision, and here is the Son of Man presented, uh, verses 13 and 14. I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a Son of Man was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, honor, and a kingdom, so that all the peoples, nations, and populations of all languages might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. And so the vision shifts back up to heaven again, and now we're back into poetry and not in prose anymore. And the best evidence that Jesus is this Son of Man is that this is the favorite title that he used to describe himself throughout the New Testament, right? And when he was on trial before the high priest, uh, Jesus quoted these verses before the high priest. He said in Mark chapter 14, uh, when questioned by the high priest, he said, You will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. A clear reference to Daniel chapter 7. And the high priest had no doubt what Jesus was saying. He was claiming deity for himself. And that's why uh, they wanted to have him killed and charged him with blasphemy. So Jesus, the Son of Man, uh, notice that in verses 13 and 14, uh, the Son of Man and the Ancient of Days uh, are two distinct persons, and they're both God. We need to notice that. And this is one place in the Old Testament where we can see uh, this distinction, which is often cloudy in the Old Testament, uh, revealed much more clearly in the New Testament. But here we can see that, that both Jesus uh, and God the Father are God. And the Ancient of Days will present the Son with subjects and a kingdom that will never pass away, and Jesus will rule over that kingdom. Now, I, I tell you this because there is an ancient heresy called modalism, uh, which basically says uh, that God is not three separate persons, but he's God. Sometimes he takes the form of God the Father, and sometimes he takes the form of Jesus, and sometimes he takes the form of the Holy Spirit. That is absolutely wrong. That's why it's a heresy. Uh, it's absolutely not true. Uh, so what we know is that God is three separate persons, uh, all existing eternally, and yet there is one God. And so we say, uh, theologians say, that he is three in person and one in essence. That is the Trinity. And presenting the kingdom to the Son of Man will fulfill Psalm 2, uh, verses uh, 6 through 9. Let's say, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will announce the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have fathered you. Ask it of me, and I will certainly give you the nations as your inheritance and the ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, and you shall shatter them like earthenware. So this is the future, uh, looking deep into the distant future now. All this will happen at Jesus' second coming. The Son of Man will establish an everlasting kingdom that will never be conquered by another. 
All right, deep breath. That is a ton of content that I've just dumped on you. Uh, and if you are overwhelmed by it, just imagine how Daniel must have felt when he heard this for the first time, when he saw this in a dream or in a vision, right? It's like watching Inception or some other confusing movie where you just can't figure out what is going on. So let's just stop. Let's just catch our breath here for a second. And, and let's just ask the question, uh, why is it, why is it that God, the Ancient of Days, will bestow this kingdom on the Son of Man? Well, Psalm 2 and Daniel chapter 7 look forward to a time when Jesus will receive the reward uh, that, for what he accomplished when he lived as a man. A thousand years after Psalm 2, 500 years after uh, Daniel chapter 7, Jesus took on human flesh. And Jesus lived a sinless, perfect life, which qualified him to be the sacrifice for sin that God demands. And Jesus fulfilled the sacrificial system once and for all by shedding his blood for our sin. And for a time, God accepted the blood of bulls and goats to cover our sin during the days of the law of Moses. But every time they sinned, they had to bring another sacrifice to cover that sin. Hebrews 9 says, we no longer have need of a high priest who offers uh, the blood of bulls and goats every uh, once a year because Jesus offered his blood one time, once for all. And that's why all people who put their faith in him are washed clean by the blood once and for all, by the blood of the lamb. And God declares us not guilty because Jesus has removed the stain of our sin with his perfect blood. And this never-ending kingdom uh, that Jesus is going to receive consists of believers of all ages who have been washed clean by the blood of the Lamb. So Jesus died to save us, and we are his reward. We are the kingdom that God will present to him. What a glorious Savior we serve. All right, you all caught up? You feeling pretty good? You all with me? Let's uh, move to the interpretation of the vision. The vision interpreted, beginning in verse 15. As for me, Daniel, my spirit was distressed within me, and the visions in my mind kept alarming me. I approached one of those who were standing by and began requesting of him the exact meaning of all this. So he told me, told me and made known to me the interpretation of these things. These great beasts, which are four in number, are four kings who will arise from the earth. But the saints of the highest one will receive the kingdom and take possession of the kingdom forever, for all the ages to come. So uh, it seems that Daniel is still quite perplexed and he is distressed by the vision, but he still had access to those who are standing nearby. So these most likely represent angels and possibly even the angel Gabriel who will appear uh, later in the book of Daniel. So the angel answers that these beasts are symbols of literal kingdoms uh, that would rule successfully or successively. And then this last kingdom, this fourth kingdom, will be replaced then by a fifth kingdom, uh, which is the kingdom of God, which consists of, of the saints of the highest one, uh, which we will receive someday. And so Daniel seems especially to be confused and perplexed by the fourth beast, and he wants more information about the fourth beast, and that's what he asks about in verses 19 to 22. Then I desired to know the exact meaning of the fourth beast, which was different from all the others, exceedingly dreadful with its teeth of iron and its claws of bronze, and which devoured, crushed, and trampled down the remainder with its feet. 
and the meaning of the ten horns that were on its head, and the other horn which came up, and before which the three of the horns fell, namely, that horn which had eyes and a mouth, uttering great boasts, and which was larger in appearance than its associates. I kept looking, and that, uh, that horn was waging war with the saints and prevailing against them, until the Ancient of Days came, and judgment was passed in favor of the saints of the highest one, and the time arrived when the saints took possession of the kingdom. All right, so from what Daniel has already told us in the vision of the four beasts in verses 1 to 8, we already know that the little horn came after the ten horns, and that it uprooted three of the horns that preceded it. Uh, we also know that the little horn could speak like a man, and that it had uh, very loud and boastful, arrogant words. Uh, so we knew that already, but now here in verses 21 and 22, Daniel gives three new pieces of information that he had not given in verses 1 through 8. And that is that, that this little horn will rise up and he will persecute uh, and prevail over the saints of the Most High. Uh, secondly, that the Ancient of Days will bring judgment in favor of the saints and against this little horn. And third, that the uh, saints will ultimately possess the kingdom. And so Daniel, of course, is perplexed. He doesn't understand. Uh, and so what does all this mean? And so the angel answers, beginning in verse 23. This is what he said. The fourth beast will be a fourth kingdom on the earth, which will be different from all the other kingdoms and will devour the whole earth and trample it down and crush it. As for the ten horns, out of this kingdom, ten kings will arise, and another will arise after them. And he will be different from the previous ones and will humble three kings. And he will speak against the Most High and wear down the saints of the highest one. And he will intend to make alterations in times and in law, and they will be handed over, him, over to him for time, times, and half a time. All right, one verse at a time. Verse 23 uh, seems to represent the Roman Empire, which has already come and gone, the earthly Roman Empire, which has happened in history. So that empire was different in its ferocity. Uh, it devoured the whole earth, and it dominated the earth for centuries. Now, as we come to verse 24, this represents a jump forward in time. Uh, it's referring to the future reconstituted Rome that will exist in some form at the end of the age when Jesus comes again. And I say that because these ten kings, these ten horns, do not correspond to anything that we have seen in history. There's never been anything like this on the earth. And so since the first four kingdoms are literal kingdoms which have come and gone, uh, we believe that this next kingdom is also going to be a literal future kingdom. Now, my belief, along with those who hold to a premillennial view of end times, is that the events of verse 24 will happen after the rapture uh, and during the seven-year tribulation, which is Daniel's 70th week, as we will talk about uh, when we get to Daniel chapter 9. In those days, uh, some ten-kingdom federation is going to exist, and out of those ten kingdoms, one king will arise who will humble three kings, and he will speak against the Most High and make war against the saints. And his campaign will last for a time, times, and half a time. Now, a time is a year. 
times is two years, and half a time is half a year. So that's three and a half years, which represents the second half of the seven-year tribulation period, which is called the Great Tribulation, which is discussed in great detail in Revelation uh, chapters 6 through 19. And this is where uh, the Antichrist persecution continues until the end of the tribulation when Jesus Christ comes again. So the Antichrist is going to have his way for the allotted time, but then God will bring judgment. All right, you all with me? All right, here we go. Uh, let's look at God's judgment of the Antichrist, verses 26 to 28. But the court will convene judgment, and his dominion will be taken away, annihilated, and destroyed forever. Then the sovereignty, the dominion, and the greatness of all the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be given to the people of the saints of the highest one. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom, and all the empires will serve and obey him. At this point, the revelation ended. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts were greatly alarming me, and my face became pale, but I kept the matter to myself. Well, for all the difficulty we've had throughout Daniel chapter 7 so far, understanding what all this is, this is the easy part, right? Jesus wins. Jesus wins. Hooray and amen, right? When Jesus returns, he will destroy the Antichrist. He will take away his dominion forever. Revelation tells us that he will be bound uh, for a thousand years, released for a short time, and then cast eternally into uh, the lake of fire. Now, I believe that Jesus is going to come and establish a literal 1,000-year kingdom on earth uh, before God brings a new heaven and a new earth where we will live for all eternity. His kingdom will have no end. And brothers and sisters, this is the good news. This is what we have to look forward to, eternal reign with the Lord Jesus Christ. At the end of the vision, Daniel was alarmed. Uh, he, he kept the matter to himself until he wrote it down later. And Daniel is just left to wonder, what does this mean? Uh, I don't understand this. Uh, but he's, he's thinking about this coming kingdom of God when the saints uh, will once, one day rule with the Most High. So even the prophets didn't understand everything they wrote. You know that, right? I mean, they, they wrote this stuff down because God gave it to them, but they didn't understand everything they wrote. And of course, Daniel, from his perspective, he doesn't have the benefit of unfolding world history, uh, and he doesn't have the benefit of the, the Messiah who has come uh, and who has born and died and was raised from the dead. Uh, he didn't have the gift of the Holy Spirit or the gift of the New Testament. But we do. So when we, uh, as New Testament saints, speak of the kingdom of God, we know way more than Daniel knew or understood about the kingdom of God. So there is an, an already aspect of the kingdom of God, right? Jesus has come in the form of Jesus Christ. The kingdom has come in the form of Jesus Christ. Uh, and, and with him, uh, he brought the kingdom of God. He said the kingdom of God is now among you when he walked the earth. Uh, and there's also a present aspect of the kingdom of God, right? Uh, Jesus promised, go to Jerusalem and wait and you will receive the Holy Spirit. All believers have the Holy Spirit. And so the kingdom of God reigns on earth now through the Holy Spirit, through you and I, the saints. Uh, the Holy Spirit is the present aspect of the kingdom of God on earth. And still, there is a future, a not yet aspect of the kingdom of God. We eagerly await Jesus' second coming when he will bring justice, as Daniel chapter 7 talks about, and he will make all things new and all things right. And this promised restoration will come when Jesus returns. When will that be? We don't know, but we do know that it will be glorious. 
So let's close with a few applications and just think about the astounding accuracy of Daniel chapter 7 and how these prophecies have come true uh, exactly as predicted. Uh, and so with that in mind, we can say uh, that God's word is true. Uh, we believe that the word of God is actually spoken by God. It is God-breathed, and therefore it cannot be wrong, and it cannot fail, and it never has. The Bible has proven its reliability over the centuries, over and over again. It's never been wrong in anything that is ever said. And so Daniel prophesied over 2,500 years ago, and yet the astounding fulfillment of, and the accuracy of these prophecies should give us great confidence in the word of God. It has never failed, and it never will. And because that is true, we can have absolute confidence that Jesus is coming again. Many of the Bible's prophecies, many of Daniel's prophecies, have already happened in history. And this proves that God controls all of history. And the best predictor of future performance is past performance. And so a fulfilled prophecy gives us confidence that all God's prophecies will one day be fulfilled. God has repeatedly promised, and Jesus himself has testified, that he is coming again. All Christians agree on this, even if we don't necessarily agree on the timing of when he's coming again. Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ will come again. And we've been waiting a long time. You know, it's been 2,000 years, and we might get a bit discouraged and say, well, is he really coming? It's been a long time. Uh, and so don't be discouraged. All God's promises will come to pass. Jesus is coming again. And because of the accuracy of God's prophecy and because of his amazing sovereignty, God can handle your present circumstances. If God can orchestrate every event, past, present, and future of all world history, he can handle our present circumstances too. Sometimes our lives are so confusing and so troubling and we're not sure what's going on or what God is trying to teach us. We've all been in periods of like, like that in our lives. If you're going through one of those periods right now, uh, just pray, uh, trust God, rely on him, uh, trust in his sovereignty and know that whatever it is, he will use it for good. He's already got it all worked out. Uh, sometimes our lives are like a confusing movie. You know, we need to see the end so we can figure out what was going on in the middle, right? That's what our lives are like sometimes. Uh, but after, after we see it from the other side, then we can say, oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and how unfathomable his ways. And we will say, I get it now. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord indeed. Amen. Amen. Lord God, we thank you for this incredible Daniel chapter 7. Uh, the prophecies so accurately predicted and, and so uh, accurately fulfilled, exactly fulfilled in history, Lord. It just blows our minds to think that you have that kind of power and authority. And Lord, uh, since that is true, we know you can handle what it is that you've put in our lives, Lord. Help us to ask why you have put these things in our lives and, and what we can learn from them, Lord. And mostly, I just pray that these prophecies will help us come to love you more uh, rely on you more, and Lord, to, to more eagerly anticipate the coming of Jesus Christ, and to tell those who need to hear about him, because for them, when he comes, it'll be too late if they have not received, Lord. So we just pray uh, for a world that so desperately needs the gospel, that they will hear the words 
of the gospel that Jesus died for their sins and rose from the dead and that they will believe and have faith and be saved. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.